Happy New Year, NK News podcast listeners. Before we start this week's episode, please fill in our listener feedback survey. You can find it at tinyurl.com slash nknewspodcast2023, all in lowercase. The link will be in the show notes as well. We need your feedback to continue to improve this podcast. 20 lucky people will be chosen at random to receive a free year's subscription to nknews.org. Once again, the address is tinyurl.com slash nknewspodcast2023. Now, on with this week's episode. podcast listeners, I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Monday, December 18th, 2022. I'm joined here on the Zoom by three members of the NK News and NK Pro team who have recently returned from a trip to Washington, D.C. and New York City. But first, before we begin, please leave a review about this episode on iTunes or whatever platform you use and share this episode with colleagues, friends and even enemies and especially frenemies. And what's more, please like and subscribe. Secondly, check out NK News, where you can find all the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, which helps to fund all the great work that we're doing here at NK News and NK Pro. Thirdly, follow us on Twitter. You can find each of our handles in the show notes. And NK News Org, one word, is a general Twitter account for the entire platform. Now, to introduce our three guests today, freshly back from America, we have my colleagues and roundtable veterans, Chad O'Carroll, Jongmin Kim, and Collins Worko. Thank you all for joining me on the podcast today. Morning. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Probably the last one that we'll record for this year. Okay, so let's talk about your recent trip to the US, specifically to Washington, D.C. and New York City. First, I've got to say, I'm really jealous. I enjoyed my trip to those cities in January 2020, just as COVID was beginning, and I look forward to going there again one day in the future. Well done on uh, getting the trip out there. Yeah, yeah. It's been the first trip we've done uh, since the pandemic. You know, we used to do these big events in D.C. where we could justify bringing uh, large numbers of people there. But sadly, those events are on ice. The big ones that we used to do in different mm. cities, hence the smaller team uh, that went this time. I, I do hope they come back. Chad, what was the main purpose of this trip? Uh, the main purpose was really twofold. Number one, to meet existing and potential clients of our service. So NK Pro is the platform that we've built for professionals who work on North Korea. And um, there are many institutional subscribers within uh, the US government, US think tank community, uh, military, business, corporate sectors. And so we wanted to just check in with a few of our uh, long-term readers in, in the NK Pro sphere and also to meet and learn from people working on North Korea policy in Washington, D.C. and in New York City to, to see what's on their mind and uh, try and understand from them what's going on. And in that regard, we also uh, did our first ever uh, networking event, uh, evening networking event in DC, where we put together, I know we brought together some like 60 or 70 people who were who are like working on North Korea right across the board, but with uh -huh. a lot of a lot of younger folk as well, because um, not to be cliched, they are where the future is. 
Yes, exactly. And well done on that. Um, <laughs> did you find out if any of them or all of them are uh, already listeners to the NK News podcast? Yeah, some of them definitely listen to the podcast. I had a few people come up to me uh, who have been interviewed on the podcast or ah. who want to be interviewed on the podcast or who listen to it. Um, so podcast seems to be popular in DC. Asking Excellent. the important questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to ask the important ones. Uh, did you each have individual separate missions to uh, meet certain people or achieve certain goals? Um, well, just quickly, I met a few people on the side, uh, people I haven't seen for a few years from, from DC, but Jungmin, Colin? Yeah, I did a present, a separate presentation talking about satellite imagery mm. uh, for KEI, and the other two did a, some separate event that I was not a part of as well. And have any uh, published stories come out of this trip? No, 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 we weren't. We, we were, we had, I think, like eight presentations if memory serves over wow. the week so it was yeah and it, like the calendar was pretty pretty killer um so we didn't have time for writing unfortunately yeah and our uh, our friend and colleague dr andre lankov was with you as well wasn't he he was yeah he uh he went out a few days earlier and um introduced us to some great bagel shops in various places uh yeah he he was good to have in all the meetings it's really uh you know he has so so much long term uh insight and context on everything and yeah. i think it it's really good for us who are all like less experienced to have that kind of experience with us in the room so yeah. that when there are difficult questions we can throw them to him yeah, it's a pity he can't be here on the uh, the podcast today, but he sends his apologies uh, to our listeners. So, Chad, as you mentioned, this is the first NK News team visit to uh, the east of the United States since our last trip in January 2020. What's the value of taking trips like this? Well, I think, obviously, we've been in a Zoom over overkill for the last two, three years. And with that, there has been very limited ability to just interact with people, especially to meet new people. And events and conferences are really good for networking, meeting new people. And also, of course, when you're going to meet people face to face, they're much more willing to share stuff that they would be hesitation doing online. So, mm. you know, we got to got to learn from people about what they, I guess, quote unquote, really think on some of the issues, which was quite interesting when it came to some of the government folks we met. But yeah, I, I thought that was that that's the main value and continues to be the main value in doing stuff in person. Right. Any any comments there at all, Jongmin or Colin? It was also the first time since the Biden administration and the Yoon Suk-yeol administration in South Korea inaugurated that mm. we visited the DC. We monitor a lot of things going on in South Korea on a day-to-day basis, but it's difficult to see what the actual vibe is in DC unless you visit the place because it's very different talking to people off record in the room or yeah. just via email or call and zoom so yeah it, it enables us to go into more in-depth discussions about policy lines and um, defense goals and so on and so forth and how has the general mood changed uh, from the trump administration to the biden administration and I, I don't want to talk specifically on korean affairs yet i'm just talking about the general vibe the general mood i guess that people are well no it's not a guess people are i think like the stability that's come back to governance in you know we've met people that worked under and some of the meetings i think it was one meeting in particular we heard about people being kind of blindsided mm. by uh, some of the things trump would tweet 
directly relating to this person's <laughs> professional beat and what their area of government focuses on. And so, you know, when Trump was president, if you'd be working hard and diligently on things, and then sometimes he could just override your his your work with his public utterances, or on on the contrary, uh, cause lots of weekend work for you by uh, stating that something is pending when it might mm. not be. That's one example I can think of where that there was. I'd say a sigh of relief from people, some people that things have returned to normal, quote unquote, and become more predictable. Right. And also uh, not just after Trump, but after pandemic, I could see that the general ambience in DC offices changed a lot. Mm. I, I personally visited CSIS to see my old colleagues and I think only half of them were there. I think a lot of people are still teleworking in DC. And I heard that Mondays and Fridays, people are usually just working from home. And it seems like there are less and less um, space for personal interactions, it seems. So um, mm -hmm. us gathering people together, I could see that people were really enjoying it. I would just add on that. I think that was the one of the biggest things I felt from the trip was the the whole event and conference area has changed so much in the yeah. two, three years we've been away. Like. I remember when we were there before, we would get you know, 80, 90 people showing up to events and now it's like 10 or 11. And wow. the reason, and then, but then the thing is when you meet people in other meetings, they're like, oh, I, I saw you at this X event or Y event and they're all tuned in online mm. through the hybrid Zoom connections. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's convenient, but the downside I think is this, you know, face-to-face -face contact disappears. And especially for young people, there is much less opportunity to be in the exactly. room with someone senior. Mm. And, you know, I I saw people on this trip just a couple of weeks ago that I literally met and introduced myself to at conferences 13 years ago as a young intern. And mm. I just worry that interns are not going to have the, the the same networking opportunities because yeah. people, so many senior people just don't want to go in person anymore. And that's yeah, I have the same concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Colin, what about in Korean affairs? Did you notice a, a significant changing of the guard having taken place under the new administration or a major policy review? Well, I didn't do many of these meetings pro during the Trump administration, so I don't really have much to compare to. Okay. Yeah. Chad, Jongwin, have you got any comments on that? Just to reiterate what I said earlier, I mean, I think the main thing I can compare is the level of predictability is restored, but... You know, one thing that's definitely clear is a huge difference is the level of priority is just not there. It's so mm -hmm. clear that North Korea is just on the back burner right now from multiple parts of government and indeed the think tank industry. And, uh, you know, I remember being there in 2017, having like coffees with sources in in Starbucks and there was so much going on. There were North Korean officials coming to D.C. There were you know, senior like delegations from North Korea coming to New York City, there was definitely a sense of excitement and curiosity. And mm. I remember people were asking me like, oh, what do you know about this ambassador? He's going to be in DC next week. Can you tell, oh, we need to prepare a gift for him. Have you got any tips? Like stuff like that is just not obviously happening anymore. And um, yeah. Usually when a, uh, a new president comes in, they do a, uh, they tend to do a policy review of things like Korea, North Korea, Korean affairs, denuclearization, etc. Did you notice the uh, the effects of that much? The policy review? Yeah. 
Well, the policy review, I mean, as we've discussed on this podcast, is just seems to, to me at least to just be uh, strategic patience 2.0, a few changes here and there. Right. So it can't, I guess it's doing what it's meant to do, which is not make things a priority relating to DPRK. And is Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine having any noticeable effects on the foreign policy community's attention paid to North Korea and Korean affairs more broadly? Yeah, I think so. Also, the increasing authoritarianism in China as well, along with the Russian-Ukraine war, it, the two topics came up a lot during our discussions on North Korea. And just to get back to your question before, mm. Jacko, as well, I was in D.C. in 2017 as well during the Fire and Fury. And actually, a lot of the discussions that we had were about the escalation cycle recently, like North Korea firing missiles and artillery shells and so on and so forth. But it seems like it, linking to what Chad said, because it's a bit deprioritized, it seemed like people do understand that there is an increased level of military activity from North Korea. But the sense of urgency, it seems, yeah. it actually decreased mm. um, thinking about North Korea. And I think that the reasons include the world seeing what appears to many people more urgent things like Russia actually threatening to use the nuclear weapons and yeah. something like that. It could also be just the case of the law of diminishing returns, right? That as North Korea fires more missiles, it actually gets less attention rather than more. Well, it, it could be part of that. In 2017, I was in D.C. when there was the whole noise about whether or not North Korea will fire an ICBM. And yeah. it was actually a big deal at the time. But now it's not one ICBM is not a thing, you know, not a big headline anymore. So a lot of people were talking about oh, when's going to be the next nuclear weapons test. Yeah. But the cause and the, the reason and the, you know, preparations for when North Korea actually does a nuclear weapons, I think it was really different from when it was in the sixth nuclear weapons test. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I don't know, maybe one of you can speak to what the the hidden understanding was back in, in 2017 regarding how much of a nuclear state North Korea really is in reality. But mm. that was definitely the, the mood this time was, of course, denuclearization is not a realistic goal, but it has to continue to be the policy, so right. to speak. Right, yeah. um, Sorry, can I just add on one more thing? Please. So the nuclear weapons possession thing, I think North Korea may have gained what it wanted in the past few years a little bit because in 2017, it was more like the normative sense, the should sense of we should not let North Korea nuclearize was much stronger. Yeah. But now it seems like the discussion is definitely sort of moving on towards is North Korea already a nuclear state or not, although many of them are still a shush discussion. I think the sense of is, is it time to really recognize it as such or is, is, are there risks attached to that? I think that discussion has definitely risen in D.C. But I don't think I don't think I heard any evidence of there being a discussion of recognition of official. Recognition. No, 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 no. It, it's not like we we are trying to recognize it. When I'm saying they, it's not the U.S. government officials. It's just just D.C. people in general. I think yeah. that topic was not there mm. before. It wasn't a matter of discussion even at the time, I think. So as Colin reminded us, uh, the uh, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization of North Korea is still 
the stated policy of the United States. Is it actually believed in or did you find did you, did you get the sense that people are paying lip service to it? I think uh, it's still a, there's still a belief that that has to be the the policy. And I don't need, I mean, that's the part that you have to compare is how how much belief was there in the possibility of achieving that goal back in 2018. You know, really behind the scenes as part of someone who wanted a big deal at Hanoi, for example, how much did they really expect to see that happen down the line? But yeah, I think there's still a belief that if you can get them to the table, then you can start talking about steps towards denuclearization. I don't know how much their belief survives in that eventually happening. Chad, what's your sense of it? Yeah, I think Colin's right that people still feel like there's no practical alternative but to continue pursuing the goal of denuclearization even though they know in practice it's not going to go anywhere simply because of the other consequences and how big u.s government is like that even if this was considered a small uh, you know a smart step by those with expertise on north korea that they're Mm. just turning around this like oil tanker behemoth of u.s government to accommodate this is just be so difficult But what I guess was also interesting, you know, we touched upon a little bit in one of the meetings, what if South Korea goes nuclear? Mm. And um, that's something, as you know, that's got increasing momentum here. But the message I sort of understood was, no, we can't we can't let that happen. I don't know. Again, is that just wishful thinking or are we going to see the US? I highly doubt this. Uh, If South Korea goes that way, are we going to see the US leveling massive sanctions on that are okay in the same way that they did to Deepak. I, I just can't see that happening. We've had some commentators on this podcast in the last year saying that the war on Ukraine is sort of the final nail in the coffin to North Korean denuclearization, that North Korea will never give up its nukes, if that were ever possible, uh, given what's happened with Ukraine. Have you heard people saying that, any of your think tank contacts or uh, government contacts suggesting that when you were there? Mm, I think that's kind of an outdated narrative. I mean, I don't I didn't hear people volunteering that sort of narrative. It's well known that North Korea has to have security guarantees, whether that's through its own nuclear weapons or by somehow becoming an ally of the United States. And that's a whole other hypothetical. So I'm just curious, what do you mean by it being an outdated narrative that the uh, the Ukraine war was the nail in the coffin to uh, denuclearization of North Korea? Well, anyone who has in the last few years suggested that North Korea could give up their own security guarantees for some promise on a piece of paper, I think hasn't, I mean, even though that's been an official line, it's not really too serious of an argument. So just by saying, oh, Ukraine gave up their, the weapon, the nuclear weapons that that was on their territory in exchange for security guarantees, and they saw that go out the window. That's the thing that convinced Kim Jong-un not to do it. I don't think that's a, I don't think there's a straight line between the two. But, you know, I didn't really hear that talked about. And that was the question. So, yep. So how is the uh, the think tank scene there in Washington and New York? Has that been changed by the arrival of new players? For example, the uh, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, or has there been a big change in lineup from uh, prominent former Trump administration members joining the think tank world? Well, we didn't meet Quincy Institute people. I did reach out to them, I think. But um, we, we didn't really go to any think tanks except... I think, oh no, we did go to, we went to Brookings, KEI and Jong went to CSIS and we also went to Career Society in New York. I mean, for me, just the huge difference like we've already discussed is just the hybrid event thing is just, is just killing a large part of what I associate think tank life with in DC. Yeah. And for me, what's so odd 
is that a we're not feeling that in Seoul. People still like regularly pack out events here, yeah. and b the paradoxes in DC when we hosted a an evening event with uh, NCNK, it was completely packed, and we did a, a networking happy hour thing, and it was really busy as well. So people, the idea that people can't get off their chairs to go to events is not is inaccurate. Networking things can draw people together or evening-based things, but for some reason the daytime stuff is just not working. And I think it's interesting. Bad. Interesting choices being made there. Yeah. <laughs> also, there were free pizza and alcohol at our happy hour, and Chad was bartending. So oh, that always brings the people. A little bit in, of a factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also about the think tanks, I I didn't go to many enough to say this. And just in general, but I did hear from a couple of people that there is definitely an increased, relatively increased attention in South Korea, not just North Korea, in the think tank scene in DC in the past couple of years, hmm. um, with the rising indifference towards North Korea's activities and South Korea having gaining more attention in the in the policy scene. Right. That's also uh, is is that perhaps a knock on effect of South Korea's increasing soft power and and cultural uh, commercial value? Yeah, that could be part of it, but probably not just everything. But yeah, yeah I think it's a relative factor. I think North Korea. When when people thought about Korea in DC, I think it was mostly North Korea at the time, thinking about the military tension and so on and so forth. But now, when we think about Korea, it's not just about military, but it's also about, like you said, soft power, but also econ. Um, South Korea is part of IPEF and and other regional forums as well. So it, I, I think remind us again what IPEF is. Oh, it's in the Pacific Economic Forum led by the US. Okay. One yeah. one other thing I'd like to add that is actually a, a big difference from years past is one of the interlocutors I spoke to within think tank community said that as a result of some trends, I believe that started building momentum in the Trump administration, there's much more scrutiny over what foreign funders government funders are doing when it comes to think tank activities. So mm. some think tanks now uh, categorically in DC refuse to accept money from governments, including the South Korean government, which means that certain programs on the careers uh, in certain think tanks are totally disconnected, which I think is a good thing, but it probably means they have less resources. The other knock-on effect of this, which was really interesting, is that there's apparently some um, limitations on how many uh, government officials from the South Korean embassy or from uh, South Korean government think tanks or uh, funded, directly funded institutions in DC can attend events lest it look too much like uh, hmm. foreign influence or interference. And I know this is this, this isn't just career specific, but it's something that has been growing across the board. Lots of people have been wondering why some of these big think tanks have been receiving like huge amounts of money from Gulf states, for example, mm. who are not particularly well known for freedom and democracy. But it probably means there's some some painful decision making going on in some of these institutions regarding the scale of projects, which could have probably been much better funded in the past. But yeah. I think it's probably a good thing in the in the long term. When you say increased scrutiny of uh, of think tanks that receiving money from overseas, what does that look like? Well, one uh, example in the public domain is it, it there have been, I think it was the New York Times did a pretty thorough investigation into this a few years ago. And I think some congressional offices subsequently got, got worried about what level of uh, 
interference there is. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was at working in a think tank in DC, not on Korea, back in 2010 or 11. And we were focusing on a project on Africa and there was an area in Morocco, a sub, sub, just south of Morocco that's, you know, if you look on Google Maps, there's this kind of country that Morocco mm, doesn't Western Sahara. Western Sahara. And the Moroccan government was funding the project somehow. And we were doing a think tank report and on the maps that we published in the yeah. report, we were not allowed to refer to that country. Oh. And there was a whole load of policy. And so that that is clearly unacceptable. Like yeah. A funder shouldn't be able to do that. So there are definitely examples out there. Mm. And I think it's right that people pay more attention to the strings that come with some of this money. But it's something that's like global. It's not career specific, but there will, you know, careers, career issues in D.C. have been very, very heavily funded by Korean corporations or government related entities. And so I think there's probably quite a big vulnerability there if mm. there is to be a lot of question marks on that funding. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier, Chad, that people aren't coming to a lot of uh, daytime conferences, uh, although they are more willing to attend the evening networking events. On the other hand, since COVID restrictions in Korea were loosened earlier this year, we now see a lot more people from the United States, uh, particularly from the East Coast, resuming their regular trips out here to Seoul. Do you feel like things are back to normal or do you still meet people who are unaware of what's happening here and want to pick your brains about what's going on on the peninsula? Yeah, so there's definitely things are getting back to normal, but maybe too much because one thing we heard repeatedly when we were in DC was that there were so many career events on that single week. I think like nine or 10. Wow. Where there was tons of delegations in town. Like I think KDI were doing something. KEI were doing a, their annual opinion leaders seminar, which is flying in uh, tons of experts from Korea. There was uh, the Che Institute had just done something out in Virginia in a fancy hotel. There was lots of stuff going on simultaneously. So it may be that one effect of the COVID co like stuff drawing down is that we're yeah. just seeing a huge uptick in activity. And that may actually be diluting the impact or reach of everyone. But yeah, it's still interesting to me that people in Seoul are much, much more willing to come in person. We get four houses for every event we do, more or less. And then in, in DC, it's just so small. Hmm. Can you uh, share anything, uh, anything interesting tidbits from your uh, your meetings or uh, networking yeah. events? Well, well, one thing I wanted to say, which I thought was interesting, I had a conversation with uh, one gentleman who I think would be much more supportive of Yoon than of Moon Jae-in. And this person said he was very concerned about the Moon administration, sorry, the Yoon administration's pursuit of Sahun in particular. He said they were deeply troubled by this. And, it, you know, he, Sahun is a very fine North Korea watcher expert. And um, I, I was interested to hear that some people in DC are paying attention to the fact that this kind of activity is going on with so much energy. Jongmin? Yeah, uh, that's in line with what I said before about a lot of attention on South Korea. It's actually a very detailed attention on like political move in South Korea, basically, sometimes that are not directly linked to North Korea. Sahun obviously is, but I right, did Right, just for also... our listeners there, that's uh, to, to remind our listeners, the uh, the investigation into uh, Sahun is about, uh, more broadly is about the uh, 
uh, what happened to the South Korean fisheries ministry official who uh, ended up in the water and was uh, shot and his body was set on fire by North Korean soldiers uh, a few years ago. And, that, uh, and yes. to clarify, that's a, that's the UN administration going after the former I mean, national security advisor yeah, who was in charge at the time. Just right. I didn't hear that was clarified. So yeah, so so um, not just about Sohun, but also I heard multiple times, actually a lot of times, where people pinpointed to a very specific, detailed remarks from the South Korean high-level official or the president in like related to North Korea and not related to North Korea. For example, right before some of our meetings, President Moon said something about how the labor strike in South Korea is similar to North Korean nuclear threat. And there were a lot mm. of people asking me to clarify what he meant by that. There were some people who were talking about why Yoon ends up talking about North Korea in a very escalatory manner sometimes. So it seemed like there are a lot of very intense attention on every South Korean moves these days, it seems. Mm, interesting. Uh, Colin, are you able to share anything? Interesting tidbits? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm nothing <laughs> that, I mean, there were some interesting tidbits, but I don't think I can talk about. Who... I can... Uh... I can maybe jog your memory, and this is something we can we might all m mention. Three, two things, three things. One is uh, we met a lot of people talking about sanctions, and some actually surprisingly were pragmatic about the diminishing role of sanctions. And two, exactly. yeah, 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 a lot of interest in overseas workers and cyber. So, Colin. <laughs> well, yeah, they mentioned those things. Uh, I don't know what I can say without giving away who said those things. Mm. Uh, well, I. I mean, what surprised me is uh, I, I think in several conversations we had on sanctions, people were, you know, I, I was expecting in some conversations for people to be very hawkish on sanctions and obsessive about minutiae. Yeah. And I was pleasantly surprised that there that people were not like that and that there were there is genuine recognition that some of those very minutiae style sanctions are, are, are performative. And don't really have any real effect. And I can, the, yeah. yeah, go on. Uh, I, I guess in general, there's a, an open question on the topic of sanctions about how to deal with a, the, the main problem right now, which is recognized as North Korea's ability to, uh, I guess, gain funds through things like cyber attacks and mm. other uh, cyber methods, which is all very complicated and over my head. But being able to accomplish these attacks or, or gain money, maybe through some kind of cryptocurrency, and then turn that into real money that they can use out in the world in order to purchase items such as some kind of metals that they might need for their weapons program or other materials or, or technology uh, in order to get some kind of technical help on these projects, because obviously they're making a lot of rapid progress on their missile and even mm. aerospace development in the last couple of years. Already, it's pretty difficult to track these cyber attacks and attribute them to North Korea. And then you need to find the actual people that are able to turn this into real money that they can use in the world. And then, so, you know, one method is backtracking from ships that are delivering items into North Korea, who's connected to these ships, who is connected to these transactions, but nailing down specific actors and all of this is proving to be almost impossible uh, is what we're hearing. Work. So, you know, this is a pretty big problem. And 
hearing yeah. it from from the people that know it best uh, in Washington and New York. Yeah, it's uh, that's a big one. Now, in terms of um, of executing or making and executing policy on uh, on North Korea, you've got a lot of different actors there in in the U.S. government. You've got, of course, the Department of State, but also the Department of Defense and the Department of Treasury uh, and the White House. And did you get a? Can you tell us anything about how these actors all uh, coordinate and communicate with each other? Are they uh, working at cross purposes? Does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? I think there's a pretty consistent focus on things like on North Korea's emerging cyber capabilities. I don't think we can speak to how well any actors are connected on that front. But just to reiterate, it's a basically a question of how North Korea is able to launder money in ways that are more difficult to track than before the, mm. the cyber and crypto era. Yeah. Chad or Jongmin, have you got any thoughts on that, on ways that the government actors work together or don't? Uh, yeah, not not really in detail from me. Well, um, not between government entities, but within even linking to cyber, it seems like it could be potentially a bit difficult going forward because it seems like the people who usually handle North Korea portfolio, who who are some also in rotation, they are not usually cyber experts. So it seemed like there were a lot of cooperation between different departments, not just yeah. North Korea department, but with other experts in the in the government entity. So it seems like the communication became a little bit more complicated when it comes to cyber activities and sanctioning North Korea. Right, and that'll probably continue as we expect cyber activity by North Korea to uh, to continue to grow, right? Probably, yeah. Uh, now, North Korea, of course, has a number of diplomats who have been stuck in New York City since the pandemic began, and they make up the DPRK's permanent mission to the United Nations. Were you able to visit them while you were in Manhattan? Did you get a sense of how they're doing and, and or how active they are? I, I went for a jog by the mission <laughs> to see if I might be able to bump into anyone, but I didn't. Didn't see anyone. But, um, Chad was I... loitering near the building. <laughs> they weren't out there uh, buying bagels at nearby delis? No. Well, they might have been, but I, I was loitering like a creep outside. <laughs> Chad, you should bring a flag next time. Bring a flag. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I understand from good authority that they are still not meeting people in the United States outside of the UN system that they're directly there to work within. Wow. That's been uh, like that since February 2019 when the Hanoi summit fell apart. So I guess that's going to be four years in February next it's, year. Yes. Quite incredible. Close to four very lonely, very quiet years. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite something. I don't know when or if that's going to change. Well, what, what can we look forward to uh, in the next year uh, in terms of US policy on, on North and South Korea? Good question. Probably the same line continuing again and again that they're open mm -hmm. to just they're open to dialogue that denuclearization remains the goal and probably more sanctions. I guess the as we all know the channel of sanctions at the UN appears pretty dead in terms of even yeah. not being able to enforce existing sanctions. So there are a lot of resolutions on the books that member states are required to enforce. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you if you find the, the panel of experts does all this work to find examples of violations of existing sanctions and then recommends enforcement measures that the country's member states should take and new designations based on this are not made due to opposition from Russia and China, mostly, I believe. So countries feel like they need to 
push harder on individual sanctions or and we, what we saw in the last month was mm. kind of maybe you guys know if this was unique or unprecedented but some coordinated sanctions from Seoul, Washington and Japan is that correct uh yes and EU yeah uh and EU and they all coordinated what kind of sanctions they were doing and then tried to release memos at the same time on those so maybe we'll see more of that and these are the countries that wait were... do you mean that the sanctions themselves are new or just the enforcement mechanisms are uh, being renewed well they operate under their own they don't operate exactly under under existing UN resolutions so they can sanction right. whoever they want based on yeah. what they deem is illegal being you know operating through the US financial system or the other country's financial system so more of that and these are the countries that were doing most of the enforcement to begin with anyways uh it's mm -hmm. kind of unknown how much China and Russia were doing to begin with even though they were doing some so more of this type of approach okay well that just about wraps it up any final thoughts from each of you before we go uh yeah well it was great to be back with everyone I have a huge appreciation to all the team members for enduring ultra long flight <laughs> which was quite uncomfortable at times and working so hard to prepare diligently for lots of great briefings and meetings and presentations and yeah generally everything went really smoothly so hats off to everyone and uh, Dr Lankov who's not with us today mm. yeah thanks no one should cry for us just for being able to to fly <laughs> abroad but Oh, no, I'm, I'm still jealous. A lot of fear of missing out there. No tears from Jacko here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we want to we want to um, if you if any listeners in Japan or Singapore would like to host us or work with us in person, uh, we want to make it we want to reach those two countries within before end of Q2 2023. So anytime in the next three to six months, it'd be great if you want to work with us on some stuff in your country, with your government, with your media, let us know. Uh, it'd be great to, to do something. Excellent. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode there. Uh, I want to wish all of you a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year for 2023. Merry Happy Christmas. Yep. And thanks for coming on the show. Jongmin, Kim, Chatter, Carol, and Collins Wirko. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for not only this episode, but also the recording for the year if you already have an nk news account and if you're a think tank business or academic institution take a look at our nk pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the korean peninsula inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today our thanks as always go to brian betts and arias dare for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius gabby magnuson who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks very much, and we'll hear you in the new year. Mm -hmm.